Well, hi, everybody. I'm Phil Town. And I'm Danielle Town. And today we're talking about how to do what we call rule one investing, which is from Warren Buffett, who said there's two rules of investing. Rule number one, don't lose money. Rule number two, don't forget rule number one. We talk about this in terms of being mindful about our money, about being conscious about our money, tying our values to our money, putting your money where your mouth is. We got a lot of different ways about thinking about this. Yeah, and just figuring out what on earth is going on with all this investing stuff. That's what I want to know. Well, we're, we're starting with the best investors in the world, and Charlie Munger's one of them. He has a track record that's just the envy of investors everywhere. I think a 60-year track record at 20% or better per year compounded. And he is maybe the only person on the planet that Warren Buffett would acknowledge is smarter than Buffett is. And he is the vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway and um, and tremendous intellect about investing. And so I, we've been starting each of this series with um, Charlie's own words about the four things you have to do to be a great investor. Or you have, I think it's the four things you have to know about in order to choose a company. There right? you go. Is that in right? In order to choose a proper, yeah, in order to pick a good company. So this would be Munger's and Buffett's checklist for picking a company to put your money in. Yeah. So we've been through the first two, which the first one was being capable of understanding a company, and the second one was the intrinsic characteristics of a company that give it a competitive advantage. Exactly. So you'll hear those repeated. Okay. So we're going to play them again, and um, and we'll hear those repeated, and then there's two more that we're moving on to. Okay. Here we go. Well, we may not move on yet. Oh. But we'll we may see. not move we'll on see. yet. Let's listen anyway. <laughs> Let's see if we're ready to move on. We have to deal in things that we're capable of understanding. And then once we're over that filter, we have to have a business with some intrinsic characteristics that give it a durable competitive advantage. And then, of course, we would vastly prefer a management in place with a lot of integrity and talent. And finally, no matter how wonderful it is, it's not worth an infinite price. So we have to have a price that makes sense and gives a margin of safety considering the natural vicissitudes of life. That's a very simple set of ideas. And the reason that our ideas have not spread faster is they're too simple. The professional classes can't justify their existence if that's all they have to say. I mean, it's all so obvious and so simple. What would they have to do with the rest of the semester? <laughs> every time we every time we play that, I have to laugh. It's just so funny the way he talks about it, and it's so simple. It's so What's simple. What's wrong with everybody else? It's so simple that we're probably going to spend I don't know hours and hours of podcast time explaining it how how it actually works. Right. But to Charlie, it's dead simple because he's been doing it 60 years. So, you know, the old story about mastery that you start off when you don't know anything at all. Let's say you don't know anything about investing. You are unconsciously incompetent. Actually, it's better to talk about like learning a a sporting skill like, you know, I've been learning polo. (laughs) I start off unconsciously incompetent. It's like, oh, look at swing the mallet at the ball. How hard could it be? You know, you have no idea that you are so far from being able to do this skill set at all. You're just unconscious about it. And it's really quite fun. You know, that's when you're having a lot of fun. If you're a golfer, you don't care. You're just playing. You know, you hit 120 shots, whatever. You get to hit the ball more often. Maybe that's a unique Phil Town characteristic because when I'm starting a new sport, I'm incredibly aware (laughs) at how terrible I am at it and how much there is to know. And how I don't want to inflict my terribleness on other people unless they really love me a lot or have other reasons for hanging out with me. Uh, I think with investing, I feel the same way, frankly. It's uh, it's very intimidating. Well, I think it's because of, of like your state of general enlightenment compared to mine, oh, I which would that. be that I am like just always completely excited to start something new and I don't care and... I don't. I don't care because I don't realize I'm so bad at it yet. It's but that's coming. You start right in the next stage of competence, which is conscious incompetence. 
Yes. <laughs> it's horrible. Torture. That's torture. So now, like, I'm learning to play polo. I'm at that place where, oh, my gosh, I am horrible. I can't sit on the horse right. I'm hurting my horse every time I tell him to do something. Oh. Well, I'm not hurting, hurting, okay. but I'm making him a worse horse. Oh, okay. Right? Because I'm not steering him properly with my legs or whatever. I can't hit the ball right. Everything's wrong. That is conscious incompetence. And it's a horrible phase. But if you persevere. Because all you can do is see all the mistakes you're making. Yes. And you can't see how much you've progressed, which I know because you've been playing polo incessantly now for a while. And I hear about it a lot. You've been really progressing a lot. You've gone from knowing zero to being able to play a game. I mean, that's awesome. It is actually you've done coming really well. along. Yeah. And I'm, I'm starting to see the glimmers of the third stage of competence, which is consciously competent. I'm, I'm aware of how to do it. And if I keep thinking properly, now I know I close my legs on the horse and I've got to get my body out over and get my head over the ball. I've got to swing gently. I've got to time it. And for all of our listeners, you are pantomiming now. <laughs> the, <laughs> so you can swing, see it. It's very exciting. There's this perfect little swing. So I'm now consciously aware and able to perform if I keep thinking. Yeah. About what I'm doing, it's when I get caught up in it that I stop thinking and then it all goes to pieces, Mm -hmm. right? So that's consciously competent. And where Charlie is is in the fourth stage of mastery, which is unconsciously competent. So when I watch professional polo players, I watch Adolfo Cambiasso dribbling the ball, hitting it in the air, turning his horse. The horse just seems to magically turn and run to the ball. It's like, what a genius horse. The horse doesn't know. Cambiasso is doing that without even thinking about it. It's just like unconscious. And it, the game is a flow and he gets into the flow and it's all this. Well, that's where Charlie is. That's where Warren is. That's where the best investors in the world live. And one of the most difficult things about that fact is that it's very hard for them to explain what they're doing because they almost don't know. Absolutely. Absolutely. It becomes a habit for them. I was just reading a book about habits. Gretchen Rubin, who's one of my favorite writers, just came out with a book about habits. She writes a lot about happiness and, uh, and, and just really how to be happier in your life, which isn't the same as being perfect in your life, which I think is an amazing idea. Mm. And so her new book about habits is about um, creating systems in your life that are so automatic that you don't devote any brain power to them so that you can free up your brain power and your thoughts for other things that you want to be doing, which I just think is this beautiful idea of like, let's just automate ourselves. Mm, like give me an example of something like that. Any habit. So you want to make your bed every morning. Okay. Right now, let's say you don't make your bed every morning. You have to think about it every single morning. Oh, I got to leave the house soon. Did I make the bed? No, I didn't. Now I have to go make the bed. I really don't want to. I'm still going to do it. There's all these steps and all these, literally all these thoughts in your mind that you have to go through. And it's taking up thought space that could be devoted to something else. Do you, do you actually go through this process of, oh my God, I have not made my bed? Well, it, you know, it could be any habit that you want to develop. I'm just curious develop. if bed making is like a thing. I actually am trying to make my bed more often. It's an excellent point. I'm glad that you pointed it out. Yes, I am trying to make my bed more often because there are studies that show that people who make their beds in the morning are more organized in their life. And I would like to be more organized in my life. Well, that's and pretty cool. And it's a simple cool. thing to do. And But is, is that a little bit like... Most people die in bed, so just make sure you don't sleep in one. No. No, it's not the same. No, it's not okay, like I'm that just at all. Curious. No. <laughs> <laughs> but to, to make this on a less trivial scale, a lot of people want to lose weight, yes. and they spend a lot of time thinking about it. And we have a billion-dollar weight loss industry in this country, and entire aisles of the grocery store devoted to it. And there's so much mental energy devoted to the weight loss. And so figuring out the way that works for you to make better food choices or eat less or, you know, whatever it is that you need to do in order to actually lose the weight, exercise daily, whatever it is that you're struggling with, and maybe it's all of the above, if you could devote less mental energy to it, if it becomes a habit, if you don't have to think about it every single time, you know you're going to do it. Well, that's probably what Nutrisystems bases their entire moat on, their brand moat, 
which is that we will provide you with a brainless yep. thing pile of things to eat. Any food delivery service. Exactly. Zone meals, whatever. Yeah. It's just boom. That's just, why people do is. juice fasts. It's so much easier than having to decide what you're going to eat. I've done a three-day juice fast and you've done juice fasts. I actually don't really like them personally for me. But what I noticed when I did it was how much it simplified my life. And that was something I didn't expect at all. But I didn't spend any time thinking about what I was going to eat. I didn't spend any time preparing the food. I didn't spend any time eating the food. I didn't spend any time cleaning up after the food. I didn't spend any time grocery shopping. It was extraordinary to me how much time I had during the day because I did none of those things. Wow. I want to put this down as one more thing for us to talk about. <laughs> well, I really I really see can, that. Can we do the habit forming? I think that... You know, the rule one investing, and I'm obviously learning about it as we go along, can be something that can be looked at as a habit or as a practice where particularly I think the first our first podcast when we talked about um, the newspapers that you read and how you look at them from a I might want to buy one of these companies perspective. Um, it's a totally different way than the way I currently read the news. And it's such a simple shift and it's just a mental shift of intention. That's all it is. And remembering that intention is a habit. This is this is really powerful. It's one of the most difficult parts of becoming a really successful investor is to, excuse me is to figure out how to bake in the things you need to do every day. Mm-hmm. I haven't thought about it this way that you're talking about. Is tell me the name of that book again. I'm gonna write that down. <laughs> Gretchen Rubin is the author, Gretchen and Rubin. the book is called Better Than Before. It's her brand new book. And she wrote The Happiness Project, and she wrote Happier Happier at Home. And she's um, an attorney who clerked for Sandra Day O'Connor and is really intelligent. And I highly recommend her work. I would highly recommend we get her on the podcast. She she just started her own podcast called Happier. So there you go. There's a plug for Gretchen Rubin. I just saw her speak at the Tattered Cover in Denver, and it was great. All right. We need to talk to her. So we should talk to our producer. (laughs) <laughs> we're laughing it's probably it. one of us <laughs> how about you do this one how about sure. you get Gretchen Gretchen we would like to have you on the podcast Gretchen we need you on the podcast let's send out so a, we can a talk call about. to the world Gretchen we want you to talk to us about how you. what would you call what it is she does is this habit forming or she what? calls herself a behavioral essayist which I think is really interesting. Behavioral essayist. Yeah. Well, are we doing like behavioral investing, or how would maybe we, we are? I don't, if we I don't asked know. her, like to, you know, to and teach us from the point of view of an investor, how do you develop this thing into this new behavior? I mean, I don't know if she would know the answer to that. I think I think that's more your realm. Well, we'll, we'll give her a week. Investor. I'll give her a week to check. <laughs> but the point is, you can read her books. Huh? Anybody can read her books, and I think. Um, not just her books, obviously, but that kind of uh, intention and that kind of view of kind of the psychology of investing is, I think, very applicable to rule number one investing, particularly be- for people who, like me, have no natural interest in investing or in the markets. Well, I got to tell you, you come by that honestly, because I never did either. I uh, mean, I never had any natural interest in You like in to it. say that, but that is... Not true. It is true. Come on. You weren't around when I was a river guide. Okay, fair enough. When you were a river guide, you were not interested. I can accept that. Totally not interested. When you you came around, I got interested. You love reading this stuff. Well, I decided I needed to put, you know, clothes on your little diaper body. (laughs) And I needed some money. And river guiding, you know, I love it, but $4,000 a year, really? is probably not going to cover a family's expenses. No. Just saying. Yeah. So you got me motivated. You know, carrying you around as a little squirt was really something. I had no idea how that was going to hammer my head. Man, I'll tell you what. You you guys out there, you want to get motivated to be an investor? Go have a kid. <laughs> That'll do it. Or don't and just do your thing. Okay, well, there's the other we side. We don't all have to have children. <laughs> this is true. Make us do things. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> well said. It's probably a terrible reason, actually. Forget what that he oh, just said that. You know, that is really true. What is? That it's going to be a terrible reason to get your life together. Oh. Is to, like, have a kid. A lot of people do that. Well, Scary thought. You know, it just happens sometimes. Yeah, true. I guess. So, so Gretchen Rubin, you're going to get her for this podcast. That rocks. And she is going to help us figure out together... 
how we're going to do this kind of investing as more of a habit, form a habit about it, which I love. Um, but we need to kind of come back in. And I think in. that we can discuss that without Gretchen Rubin as well. <laughs> we can. But I'm going to read her book right off the yeah, bat. Yeah, totally. I think it's a great book. So all you guys should go read her book too, and then we'll all be on the same page, <laughs> literally. So let's go back to Charlie because you know I'm not sure we were entirely done with the idea that this there are intrinsic characteristics that give a company a durable competitive advantage. And this is something we call moat. Um, we didn't make that up. Warren Buffett made that up as a metaphor for seeing that the company is protected in some way from having its profit margin shattered by price wars and competition. And so you, you want a company that's got these intrinsic characteristics. We talked about five of them, brand, secrets, switching, toll bridge, and price. Mm -hmm. And we named some companies that were involved in all those things. But you get right down to it. You, you got to ask yourself, how do I know it's got this thing, right, that I need, this intrinsic characteristic? What is there some objective way to know that? Would be a pretty good question. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't even know we were going to get to that kind of actual practical like question. Like down into the That's dirt. That's right. Well, I, I mean, don't want to go too deep into it on a, on a podcast. But let, let me just say that there, you know, when you look at, at, at a business, there's a language to it. Um, like if you ever wanted to play a, an instrument, there's a, there's a language of music. You know, the notes go into those little line things. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know the language. Sheet music. Sheet music. <laughs> I knew there had to be a name for it. And, and business is like that. It has a language. And so one of the things that most intimidates people about going to foreign lands is they don't speak the language. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So having a having a guidebook that explains how to speak the language and getting a little experience with it so you can, you know, you can find the bathroom or whatever. <laughs> you know, some something you need to get to. Where's the gas station? You don't need a lot and you can get around pretty good if you can if you can pronounce it properly. And um, the good news is the language of business is kind of in English. But it's also in a language of numbers. And those numbers fall into three major statements about a company. Oh, yeah. So last time you mentioned these numbers, and I thought you were skipping over the third principle. But you're not. We're still on the second principle? We're still on the second principle. Okay. So we're still talking about the intrinsic characteristics that create a durable We are. We okay. are. Because right, this is really key. This is a secret that you got to know. This is one of those secrets that Warren Buffett's had out in the public now for 50 years. But people gloss over it because there's so many things you could think about when you're looking at a company. So I'm going to dial it down into the one thing okay. you need to look at. All right. Part of identifying that this business has intrinsic characteristics that give it a moat is this number. This number is, imagine that you have put money into your bank account. Um, it's a savings account. And that savings account is going to pay you a set amount of interest. Let's say a quarter percent a year in today's market, right? So you have $1,000 in there and every year it grows by $25. Or is it $2.50? It's <laughs> some incredibly small <laughs> amount of money. Yeah. Is it really $2.50? See, I'm, you don't have to be good Let's at math. Totally calculate that. Okay, somebody calculate this. What is 0.25 percent? All right, 2.5 percent would be well, 10 percent would be 250 dollars. So 2.5 percent would be 25 dollars. My gosh, honey, you're right. It's two dollars and fifty cents. So that's what you're pretty much getting getting in your savings account right now. Is Two dollars and fifty cents. Oh, it's ridiculous. it's ridiculous. I regularly, I won't say how much is in my account, but I regularly see amounts of like thirty-two cents show up, <laughs> and it's a little, it's a little disconcerting. It's laughable, but can you imagine? I mean, if you're trying to live on a on a certain amount of money put into an investment or into a safe place right now, and you're getting this kind of crazy number, you're you're really in trouble. So. And the, All the, the more reason to listen to this attention blog. to it. I mean, it's like, who cares what your savings yeah, account gives you? It's not. Yeah, it's exactly. I had, a, I had a thing with Wells Fargo Bank um, where I was, was leaving. I still do. I've got like seven figures sitting in the bank. 
And I said, look, you guys, I'm leaving this money in there before I move it over to the fund. So you should be paying me something. I'm doing you a favor, putting money in your bank. I bet they laughed at you. They laughed at me. They said, well, how, how often would you need it? And I said, well, I need to be able to move it in, you know, in a day or two. If I, need, if I really get a great investment, I want to get it into the investment account. And I, they went, ha, 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 we'll pay you nothing. <laughs> and it's like, and you should be glad we'll hold the money for you. Yeah. And now in Europe, they are charging banks to hold the money for them. There's a negative interest rate on, on short-term accounts in Europe now. Banks are charging money. Yes. Owner, you put money a million dollars in, and next year you'll have $999,027. Hmm. They charged you for holding on to the money. So this is quite entertaining, um, and we don't want to really do that. Another reason to be listening to this. So... So where were we? We were talking about... So there's a number, which a you have number. not described yet. You're being very cagey. <laughs> so this number that a you're getting is number. $2.50 is your return on your $1,000, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's remember that word. That's return on. So return on your $1,000. It means the percentage interest rate you got or whatever, right? In a banking thing. But we like to think of it a different way. Return on your money. $2.50 on your $1,000. And we're laughing. It's just so dumb. Okay. Return on. Now, what you have in there, another key word for investors, what you have in there, we think of just as your money. That's your money. I put my money in. I got $1,000 in there. That's my money. And it made $2.50. The $2.50 is return on your money. But we don't say your money in investing. We say your equity. So that's the same thing as your money, except that it's in lots of different forms. Your equity could be in a lot of different forms. Like in your house, your equity isn't in money. It's in the value of your home after you subtract the mortgage you owe. Yeah, equity would typically mean ownership yeah. in whatever form. There you go. I think this is where you guys live and breathe. Absolutely. Yep. So you guys being you lawyers, annoying business lawyers. <laughs> God, you are you guys are so annoying. Except when we need you, <laughs> like, then we really love you. Please come and fix this. So just okay, like plumbers. Exactly. <laughs> Without the butt crack, I hope. I just can't imagine my lawyer with a butt crack. That would just oh, be the not, worst yeah, looking possible thing. Okay, let's move fine. On. Moving on. Okay. So return, return on, no longer saying your money, return on your equity. Now we're going to shorten that down to return on equity. R-O-E. Return, write that down, on equity. If you're driving, don't write it down. I was writing down return on equity and everybody stopped and I slammed into the back of the truck. Okay? I was just learning. Uh, never mind. <laughs> return on equity. This is the number that you need to know. Return on equity. Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger said there's no more important number than that. A wonderful business gives a consistent high return on equity. So you're making a big deal about this. Oh, yeah. This is humongo. Because you're making a big deal of it. I think there must be some other numbers that, that you other could be investors looking at. think are important or else you wouldn't be making such a big deal about this. And this is where you're, you're just your ordinary person who's going to learn how to do this and wants to and it's like, okay, I really am, I'm into it. I'm listening. I'm, I'm really interested. And as soon as we step into this world of numbers, this new language, the amount of words in this new language is just overwhelming. It's like somebody's speaking Arabic to me, and I don't, I don't have any context. I don't know what even any of the words mean. So the most important thing is to just learn the very bare minimum number of words you need to travel. Mm -hmm. That isn't overwhelming. So we've just got – and the beauty is with investing, ah, gosh, maybe under 10, under 10 numbers that you need to pay attention to. And then, of course, over time, you can get better and better at speaking this new language. But initially, um, of these 10, this one is number one through five. 
this one number. Does everyone think that? Or are there other investors out there who do well, who think return on equity is important, but really the number one number is this other one? I'm sure there must be investors who do well who have a different number, but they're not this kind of investor that we're talking about. Okay. This rule one, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, you know, the list of people who have made really high rates of return, 20% plus for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. As far as I know, they are all looking at return on equity as the primary number. Now, if I got any argument from that, pushback here from some of my listeners here, it would be that, oh, there's an even better number called return on invested well, capital. Well, that's what I thought you were nah. going to say. But, <laughs> but return on equity, I get why you're saying it. Because it's easier. Well, and maybe I'm wrong on the definitions of these, but equity is your entire amount of ownership right. that you have in the bank, let's say. Right. Whereas your return on invested capital is what you actually invest, the money you actually invest versus your total. Is that right? No. Oh. Close. Return on invested capital is the same thing as return on equity, but in addition to the equity, your $1,000, is the money you also borrowed. So if you have $1,000 of equity and you borrow $1,000, that's also money you can use to invest in your company. Okay, yeah, sure. And the combination. I didn't know we, were, we were borrowing. Well, you can. Okay. And companies do, and they can get in trouble. But you can see that your equity plus your borrowed money is $2,000. And what you got on it is still your return. Mm -hmm. So if you made, uh, let's say, $100 that got paid by the bank and you had $1,000 in the bank that was your money, you'd have a 10% return on equity, 1,000 divided into 100. But if you borrowed another thousand, now you've got two thousand dollars in the bank, and you still made a hundred dollars. Now your return on invested capital is five percent, so it's gone down dramatically because you had more money to work with there. So that a lot of people will look at return on invested capital. The reason I emphasize return on equity, and the reason that Buffett does as well, is because we don't really like to buy companies that have debt. So it's like when you're buying a company that's got debt, you've already moved into, oh, that might start to get too hard. So we really love companies that don't have any debt. It can get very complex yeah. very, very quickly. Yeah. When you start bringing debt in. Yeah. So when we're starting out, we're going to focus on companies that don't have debt. And if you don't have and any that's debt. That's why return on equity is the number. That's why return on equity is the number. Because return on invested capital would be the same number. And we don't have to bring up all that stuff about, oh, we got debt. Which, which one is it? And how much? And all that. So, no. We just go return on equity and we want companies with no debt. Got it. There we go. What was, what was that Vonnegut word that you said? Grocking? A grok. You grok? <laughs> I grok. Oh, yeah. We got grok going. <laughs> if, oh, my gosh. Go that Vonnegut. We'd love this conversation. So, return on equity is the one we're going to focus on. Because we're novices at this. We're no, we don't want to complicate our lives. So return on equity. And then the second number is how much debt is there? And how much is the right amount? None. Perfect. We have no debt. Oh, okay. So my original thought, which was that your return on invested capital was the return on your deployed capital. Yes. Is that that's relevant correct. in any yeah, way? Yeah. That's exactly the way... Or you know, it, does ROE say, automatically, is that only a number on your deployed capital or is that, do you do you calculate it based on everything you have? Uh, you're kicking us into the weeds now. Okay, sorry. Because, but to answer your question, deployed capital and invested capital are the same thing. Right. Right. And so, I'm asking for, for can, return on equity when someone calculates that, say personally, if I'm I'm not, Actually, but if I me, decide me, to go invest. I'm going to back up on myself here. Okay. You should, I should have called myself foul. What happens is you get a company like Apple Computer, and they might have $100 billion in cash that they're not doing anything with because right, they don't exactly. really know what to do with it exactly, yet. Yeah. It's not deployed capital. Right. And really, in fairness, you should take that out of the equation and see 
how are they doing on capital that they're actually using to build the business and all that stuff. But really, Apple, if they're not using the $100 billion, should give it back to me. I want the $100 billion. Let's say I'm the owner of Apple. And these guys are saying, yeah, gee, Phil, we've got $100 billion we're not using, but we're just going to keep it. I said, wait a second. That's my money. Well, I can understand that there are business reasons to keep some money in the bank. Yeah, but if it's my money, I should have a choice. It's my money. All right. If I own 100% of Apple, we oh, would... Oh, you own 100%, 100% of Apple? 100% of Apple. Oh, I, I missed that part. We would certainly have a discussion with, uh, you know, yes. Tim Cook and yes. say, okay, Tim, you better explain to me why you're camped out on my $100 billion and I'm not. I want to camp out on it. And if you need some, I'll give some back, okay? So you want you just cough it up. But as shareholders, we don't get to do that. Although Carl Icahn is in there at Apple busily <laughs> saying exactly that. Give me that money. So... Um, yeah, you can get all in the weeds with deployed capital. So let's stay away with that and just say, okay, return on equity is just the whole enchilada, whatever you have left. And where do you figure out your equity? Well, you go over to, there's these three statements that they write up for businesses that you'll need to start to become a little bit familiar with. Uh, the first one is called the income statement. And that's like, if you're, um, it's like basically saying, how much money are you making coming in? How much, much, how, many, how much revenue do you have? And then how much expenses do you have? And you subtract the expenses from the revenue. And what you're left with is your profit. Okay? So that's the income statement. It's a little bit just like figuring out what do you got left at the end of the month. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. The second one is a balance sheet. And that's the one that has what do you own? What do you owe? And what's left after you subtract what you owe from what you own. So if a family were to do a balance sheet, you'd basically add up what's the what's the value of our house? Okay, we've got four hundred thousand for the house, and we've got two cars, they're twenty thousand each, and you, you got the furniture, and your grandma left you a lot, and you add up the whole thing and it comes out to five hundred thousand dollars. Okay. That's assets. That's what you own. And then liabilities are what you owe, and you owe 5000 on each car, and you owe 300000 on the house. So you owe 310000 That's your liabilities. And what you have left in this case is $190,000, and that's your equity. So that comes off the balance sheet. That's what you actually own. That's what you actually own. All right? And then the third uh, statement is called the cash flow statement. And essentially what this tries to do is match up what you have in the bank, which is your cash, so that you know that your bank account balances with your books. And that's because public companies all use accrual accounting. And I know this is really going into the weeds, but the essence of accrual accounting is that it allows you to say that I got money from selling something when they haven't paid me yet, which means my bank account isn't going to balance what it looks like it is on the income statement. So they have to have the cash flow to balance it all out. Let's not go too far into that right now, okay? Yeah, let's not. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we got equity, which is you take your assets, subtract your liabilities, you get your equity, what you own, and you're dividing that into your earnings, which is your sales revenue minus your costs, and what you've got left is profit, or earnings. That's another way we say it. So profit and earnings are the same thing. So really to find out my return on equity, I'm just going to divide what I own in the business into my profit for that year. All right. So write this down, you guys. Here's the magic number. We want that number to be above 10%. Hmm. And we don't want it dropping. That's the most important thing is we want ROE, return on equity, this is the most important number you're going to look at for the business. It's going to be 10% or better. And the bigger, the better, right? So the business is growing at 10% a year or more. No, this is not about growing. This is about what rate of return am I getting on my bank account every year? And is it getting bigger or smaller? So let's say year one, my bank account pays me 0.025. Year two, it pays me 1%. Year three, it pays me 2%. Year four, it pays me 5%. So every year, 
I'm getting a higher percentage return on my money mm-hmm. for whatever reason, right? So with a business, what we see in a good business is that they're getting, let's say, a 20% return on equity, okay? 20% return. And they've been getting that on average every year for the last 10 years. And every year for the last five years, they've been getting 21%. And every year for the last three years, they've been getting 22%. And last year, they got 23%. So every year, this management team is doing a better job of making you money with the the stuff you own in that business. Does that make sense? It does. You puzzled. I see. I, I am not puzzled. I was thinking, where do we get the ROE number? Okay. So let's take the 20%. What we've got is a business with, let's say, um, $1 million of equity. Okay? And this business, so that means that if I take the assets of the business, let's say $5 million, and I subtract what it owes, which is $4 million, I get a million dollars left over. That's my equity. But So in real life... I would go to the financial statements of this company and just figure out that number. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, or there's every website out there, every brokerage site out there has that number available to you. They all do that one. So they already do the math for you. You don't even have to do it. You don't even have to know where it comes from exactly. Just look for it. ROE, where is it? Okay. So you won't even see that it's a million dollars divided into whatever the earnings are. You'll just see 20%, but you can figure it out like this. So we've got the equity of a million dollars. That's on the balance sheet. Now, the income statement tells you your profit. Okay? So it's a little division problem. The profit in this company was $200,000. The equity in this company is $1 million. So you divide $1 million into $200,000, and it tells you that on the $1 million last year, they made 20%. That return on equity was 20%. And that number, the return on equity, is available all over the place. This yep. is a standard number. Standard number. Yep. So we don't have to go and do this math or find the income statement. Exactly. Okay. Yay! That's what I want to know. Yay! We don't have to actually figure this out. If what you have to know is which numbers to look at that are already done for you. Can I Google, like, IBM ROE? Sure. And it'll come up? Sure. Let's do it. What Let's do we do it. Here? Hang on. Computer, come alive. Okay, so all you guys look over my shoulder here as I Google. <laughs> or just ignore everything he says. He's going to Google it. Um, so let's see what it says. IBM ROE. And I hit the little go button. Okay, IBM return on equity. This comes from ycharts.com. It's the first thing that came up on Google. It says, and I haven't even clicked on it, it's just sitting there as the summary. It says, IBM has a return on equity, TTM of 72.51%. That's it. So TTM means trailing 12 months. It's more Wall Street gibberish. You need to know that. In other words, looking backwards 12 months, IBM's return on equity is 72%. That's what I thought you said. And then I thought, that can't be right. can't be right. I mean, we're talking 20% sounds like a lot when comparing it to our bank account, which is making 0.25. In other words, your $1,000 invested with IBM last year would have made $720. Oh. That's pretty good. That's insane. Yeah, that's pretty good. Okay. Now... There's a lot of reasons for that, but we're not going into those right now. And so what you just said is that that number, that ROE number, is reflected exactly in the stock price. Because if I invested $1,000 and got $700, whatever it is. That would be... It's it's shown in the stock price. It's not just a number that the company makes. You've just leapt into some amazing new island of stock price. So stock price is a whole. Well, different you just thing. said I would make seven. I want to make seven hundred and, and twenty dollars something dollars. Yeah. If you own the whole company. Oh, if I own the whole company. Yes. God, there's so many catches to this. Well, this just really, investing. Let's stuff. do this. Let's just say when we talk about a stock, we're going to talk about it initially always as if we bought the entire company. Okay. Which, by the way, is a trick. It's a mind trick. 
that Charlie and Warren both use. Yeah, you mentioned that a couple times. Yeah. That's if you're funny. purchasing a couple of shares and feeling like you bought the whole thing and freaking out. Checking with thing. your values. Exactly. Making the whole thing. Exactly. And like getting yourself in the game. So, you know, get your head in the game like those guys do and you think, wow, I own the whole company. If I own the whole company and that's my $1,000 that's sitting there as equity, IBM would have made me $720 and $725.10. Okay, got it. So when we Google ROE on a specific company, that is not the return that somebody who purchased the shares on the stock market necessarily got. Oh my God, no. Is that correct? Totally correct. Totally okay. correct. Those things have a lot to do with each other because certainly a company that can make $725.10 on $1,000 of equity is going to be valued. Somebody's going to want to put a price on that. That's valuable. Now, just as an aside here, IBM is a bit of a complex company and has a lot of debt because it finances its own machines, and that changes the equation dramatically. But, And we wouldn't do IBM as a beginning investment. Oh, okay. So we're going to keep it simple. We just we were talking about it on the yeah, last Yeah, so it comes so, up. Yeah. But so there you go. You can Google a company. Let's see if we can do another one and see if we can get – let's do uh, – I don't know. What's another company you want to play? How about Walgreens? Let's see if we can get those guys up here. Walgreens. There we go. Um, I'm looking down to see if it's actually putting a number here on the summary. It's telling me where to go to get it. Yeah, I mean, that's another point is IBM is a blue chip, huge company that's been around for, you know, over 50 years. 100, 100 years. years? Oh, yeah. No. Oh, yeah. Before computers? Oh, Tom Watson went to work there in like 1914 or oh, something. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Huh. Yeah, yeah. Pre-computer. They were a punch card company for, oh, for yeah, figuring out that. numbers. Yeah. That's so interesting. Well, I just punched that uh, that Google thing. I said Walgreens, R-O-E. I actually didn't say Walgreens. You know what I said? No. I said W-A-G, which is the symbol for Walgreens, which helps. But if you put Walgreens, it would probably come up too. And if you didn't know the symbol, you could put Walgreens stock symbol. Oh, that's and easy. And it'll tell you. Okay. So I Googled it. It said, okay, their return on equity. See right here? So Daniel, I know you guys can't see this, but Danielle's looking at it. Walgreens Company, ROE. So you ended up on wikiinvest.com, which is a really useful website. I've, I've hardly ever been there before. This looks pretty cool. I didn't know that. I just picked the first one on the list. Yeah. I mean, obviously with wikis, like be careful, um, buyer beware. But, yeah. but you might want to check it a couple of places before yeah, you go pile your money in that. Yes. Yeah. In fact, of course, we're going to be talking about doing your research more. But there you go, 10%. So Walgreens meets our minimum requirement for a 10% return on equity. Now think about and that. And so you get that number and that gives you the green light to go ahead. To go ahead. It's like a gatekeeper number. Yes. Yes. So for beginners, we're just going to say, let's not do hard. Let's do easy. And a company that has a consistent over time return on equity of 10% or better qualifies to go on to do more. What does over time mean? That means consistently over a period of time. And we would like to <laughs> that have... That is true. That is what it means. How many years? How many years would be... I, I would like 10 years minimum. So that automatically crosses out any company that was created less than 10 years All ago. the ones you work on are X'd off. Well, all the ones that are exciting and new and <laughs> Google and, well, Google's probably was created Google's over 10 right. years ago. But but let me let me ease your mind because those are so much fun to, to dig into and potentially gold mines, right? Because if you get it right, they can explode. So the way we structure our portfolio is to have a small part of our portfolio available to invest in what we would consider risky businesses. So a business that has not been around for more than 10 years, we consider risky because we really don't have a, a roadmap of where this company's been. We don't know that the management is consistent at delivering good, consistent, predictable results um, that reflect the fact that they have intrinsic characteristics which give them a durable competitive advantage. Starting to go together. Mm -hmm. Whoa. Mm -hmm. So this consistency over time The helps number shows the consistency. Shows consistency. Aha. Yes. So that would tell us that, wow, these guys have been around for a decade or more. 
plenty long enough for competitors to come in and say, wow, that's a really good market these guys have. We should come in there and take it, which they would do is the moment they could do it. Yeah. If yeah. they've got a big return on equity. Well, and a word Charlie used is durable. So what these 10 years shows is the durability of that's those characteristics. What, well said. Well said. That's exactly right. So we go 10% return on equity, 10 years, and it's staying at 10% or even getting a little bit bigger over time would indicate to us that the management team is on our side as shareholders, that they're not pillaging the company and, and making bad investments and allocating the capital badly that we've left in the company and making less and less on it every year. What if 10 years ago they started out at, let's say, 20%, it went to 15, it went to 11, it went to 10, went back to 15, back down to 12, kind of like a constant downgrade, but always above 10%. Constantly downgrading, but they're coming in. I would be, if they were at 40 and had gone to 20, I wouldn't be so concerned because they're getting it's just bigger. It's all good. Assuming they're getting bigger, right? Okay. And those are very good numbers. They're just getting bigger. Um, I would want to know a little bit about why that was happening, right? Um, but the most important thing is if they are coming down steadily, it's going to throw up a concern because that's our most important number. And here, let me tell you how they wreck a company. You get somebody from Harvard Business School who doesn't really love this business. Though what they're in it for is to get a bunch of money and have a nice house on Long, on Long Island. Lots of people from Harvard are very nice and care about their companies. There's, but... a, there's a couple <laughs> who, who do, okay? So it's some the... terrible corporate raider shows up <laughs> and wants to get a house on Long Island. Yeah, and he wants to play with the big boys, so he needs a bigger jet. And he's not going to buy it. He wants the company to buy it. So they're going to upgrade the jet in the company from a Gulfstream 1 to a Gulfstream 5. Now, how does he get the bigger – how does he get the board to be okay this Gulfstream 5 intercontinental jet? He buys a factory in Yugoslavia. Of course. Now he's got a factory in Yugoslavia. And he wanted it bad enough to get the jet, so he doesn't care what he pays for it. He can overpay for the damn factory. It's not going to give him a very good return on the equity he put into the factory. So he's, he took money that was making 15% a year or 20% a year equity return or return on equity, and he put it into something that's making 2% a year return on equity, which is going to drag down the whole company a little bit. But now he's got an excuse to get a Gulfstream 5, which further drags down the company because that doesn't make you anything. Mm -hmm. And you just put a million, two million, five million, whatever they cost, 20 million. And that's how these guys who are mercenaries start to use these public companies as their own piggy bank. And they do it with the board's acquiescence, which is another, I'm writing that down. Hmm. Boards of directors. We could talk a lot about oh boards of directors. Oh my gosh, I want to hear what you got to say on that one because these guys drive me crazy. So let's, where, what we've got in this particular podcast is we've got this critical number that we have arrived at and we understand it a little bit better about how we would know that a company has this great moat. And that's because they are producing a return on equity that's consistent year after year, and it's not going down, and it's staying above that minimum line of 10%. Okay, there so the go. characteristics that we've discussed are those five moat-style characteristics that give it a durable competitive advantage. So we've got brand, secret, switching, toll bridge, and price. And then we talked about this particular number, the return on equity, and how to use that. What else is there? Is there anything else that we need to know about the intrinsic characteristics that create a durable competitive advantage? No, okay, that's it. Let me Not rephrase it. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Try Don't do you one hate number. it when you know that your question is dumb <laughs> as soon as you say it? But seriously, like... Are there any other basics that should be said right now, or okay. would you want to let move me on lead to, into to the our third next, one? Let me lead into our next podcast a little bit, uh, I don't, uh, and we can just do a little bit of on, on the next one. And that is that I also uh, what? Well, we what, don't need to go on. I, I genuinely don't know. Is there anything okay. else to be said about okay. intrinsic we, characteristics we, we, we right now? We're basically looking for a wonderful business, right? 
And a wonderful business is one that creates great return on equity and has no debt. That's a wonderful business. Now, if you want to have the greatest business on the planet, it not only does that, but it also grows. Okay. Now that is nirvana for an investor. So you get a Burlington Northern, which has this, you know, return on equity and then it grows. That's amazing. So and that can help you determine its competitive advantage. Exactly. Okay. So we can So that look sounds at that a like a, okay, that sounds like a more complicated yeah. thing that And we'll talk about that in the context of management because management um, decides with our money whether to grow that business or if it if it can and how fast they're going to allocate our capital and that's really our money. I mean, they have a choice to give it back in the form of buying back their own stock or paying dividends. And those two things give us our money back in one form or another, or they allocate it to the business. Some businesses, we're real excited that they never give us the money back because they're crushing it. And we want them to keep crushing it because otherwise we got to find a new place for the money. I'd rather have them spend it because mm -hmm. they're so good at allocating capital. Mm -hmm. Other businesses, they have nowhere they can put it. The business can't really grow. It's a wonderful business, but it doesn't grow. It just throws off cash. Sweet, forever. And that one, we want us to take the money. So we'll talk more about that next time. So hope you guys enjoyed it. And uh, we look forward to taking this up on our next podcast. See ya. Thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like us, please subscribe and leave a review for us on iTunes. You can get our notes and links for this podcast and post comments about this show and get more information about how to invest on your own by going to ruleonepodcast.com. Everything we've discussed in this podcast is either Danielle's opinion or my opinion and is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.